Hey, good morning to you all. Welcome to the Common Good Podcast. It's Wednesday, September 7th. And on Wednesdays, we often have a conversation about the role of faith in our uh, political and civic lives and what role we should play. At Vote Common Good, we're concerned about helping faith voters uh, to make the common good their voting criteria. And for many of us, that has meant that we ask them to stop voting for people like Donald Trump and those who support movements of insurrections and Christian nationalism, which is kind of a strange place, frankly, for a lot of us to find ourselves that we're right running around noodling in other people's voting choices. But it feels like we're in a time in this country where much of the Christian narrative has been grabbed and uh, taken over by a group of people who uh, have ideas that we think need to be countered. My name is Doug Badger from Minneapolis, Executive Director of Vote Common Good. And I often say, you know, I'm not interested in telling someone to stop talking or telling someone to be quiet or telling someone not to share their views. I don't think we're made better as a people, as a country, just as, you know, a human being by telling someone to be quiet. I think what we need to do is to raise our voices and to share the other opinions if we think other opinions are needed and necessary. Now, fortunately, the Christian faith calls for that. Our political system allows for that and demands it. So we're in, we're in good company in that kind of work. And today our conversation is going to be with uh, David and Kathy Peters, and they've put together a film, a documentary about some things that matter to a lot of us, and that's the role of Christian nationalism in the United States here in the, you know, the early part of the 2020s. And it's, uh, it's threatening, so a lot going on. So David, Kathy, thanks for being with, with us. Uh, Dan, good to see you. Dan is our producer and also featured in this very documentary. So, that's right. Uh, you know, you've got film, <laughs> filmmakers and film-focused uh, 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 people You can here say today. movie stars. Do, that's fine. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was going <laughs> to say documentary <laughs> star, but I don't know. Somehow that just goes down reality TV sort of. <laughs> so movie star is a better phrase, yeah. All right. Well, hey, hey, Dave and Kathy, we always check in about the weather. I'm here in Minneapolis. My weather app gives me a little uh, description every day and says, another perfect day here in Minneapolis. Uh, we chat about the weather just for a few seconds each day because we like to remind each other that with all the division in the world, we are really living under the same sky and we do share our weather together and we should at least be caring about what's going on on our planet, in our planet, and in our weather. So how are things where you're living? Well, we've been getting some much-needed rain here the last couple of days. So, you know, what's interesting about what's going on nationally is there's a drought out west, but out east we've been getting a lot of rain and a lot of weather. And, of course, down south there's been mixture of drought and now flooding going on. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're entering into September, October, living outside of Philadelphia here in Pennsylvania. It's, this is some of the most beautiful time times of, of the year. We love watching yeah. the trees change and just enjoying. And, and, you know, we've lived here. I grew up in San Diego, Southern California. Kathy's from this area. So we were drawn to move here back in 1999. And it seems like for me, I get more enjoyment out of the seasons every year, especially the turning toward winter. Winter is a little too long, um, but then spring, of course, can't be beat around here. Yeah, well, well, fantastic. You know, I think about your comment that you get too much rain in some places, not enough in others. And the weather often feels a lot like uh, our income and uh, food resources <laughs> around the world, that it's not an issue of how much. It's a, We have a distribution problem. It's a distribution right? issue, we, yeah. Yeah. Well, Dan, how's, how's the weather being distributed there in, uh, in West Michigan? Or are you in Indiana today? Because I know you are a multiple state guy. In now I'm, I'm in Michigan and uh, the weather is great. I'm in the uh, bank vault of resistance here in uh, this co-working space. Um, 
But yeah, it's a it's a perfect late summer day here as well. But I'm ready for fall. I'm ready to wear some flannel, some hoodies. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Ready to break out the new clothes. All right. So, um, David and Kathy, congratulations on this great documentary, uh, Postcards from Babylon. We'll talk about that title and where that comes from here uh, over the course of our conversations. Um, but you put together this documentary with a subtitle, um, you know, the, the, the Church in American Exile, and it's really about Christian nationalism and the effect of Christian nationalism. So, w- would you mind for people who hear that term, know that term, but don't really know how to use it themselves, right? They're not sure what counts as Christian nationalism. Uh, what would you describe to be the, the nature and makeup of Christian nationalism? As you've put this film together, this documentary, how have you come to understand Christian nationalism in the United States? Yeah, in some ways, it's a hard thing to put into a brief explanation because it's very nuanced. But but for us, as we approached the film, we wanted to look at really this unhealthy conflation of faith and politics and how often mm-hmm. our Christianity gets wrapped up in the flag and that promoting American values and American politics and American foreign policy has been also wrapped up in a Christian language and that to, to support America is to truly support Christianity and a certain brand of Christianity. And that's where, where the, the problems lie. I, I think a lot of it, as I look at my, my history, and I grew up a very conservative evangelical um, was a media pastor at three different churches for 16 years. Uh, my dad was close friends with Tim LaHaye. They started a college. You know, he hung out with Jerry Falwell. Um, so I was at the epicenter of a, a lot of evangelical thinking. And so the transition from that um, helped me. Well, it was very, a very tumultuous transition, which is a long story. But I, I think, as I remember Second Chronicles 7, you know, if my people who, who are called by name, my name will humble themselves and pray, and then God will bring healing, that that's been used really ever since the 80s, as I remember as a young mm-hmm. evangelical, that this, this idea, and Brian brings this out in his book, that America is more, we assume America to be a new Israel rather than comparing it to, to Babylon. And that as we think of America as God's chosen nation, and we apply verses that were specifically related to God's relationship with, with Israel, that's what's got in, gotten us into trouble. I mean, even the, the, some of the rhetoric going on here in Pennsylvania right now related to Christian nationalism, and we need mm-hmm. to get this state back to God, have godly standards so God can bless us again. And that a certain type of Christianity has to be in power in order for God to bless the country. And that's where I think it's real prog- problematic. I'm sorry. You know, thinking about that passage in the Old Testament, none of those things are things that we should shy away from. But if we take that formula and we apply that to America, I think that's where we end up in trouble because we should be seeking God's face and praying and individually turning from our wicked ways and corporately as well. But it's when we take that verse, which wasn't necessarily written to us and, and apply it in such a way that if we do this, then this will happen. I think that's when we get into the danger zone. Yeah, boy, that is that is so insightful. I mean, there 
there is a tendency to apply the kind of if-then computer language that I learned in seventh and eighth grade when we had to write code back in the day, mm-hmm. that you're that the way the formula of God's engagement with humanity is some conditional if-then formula, that's just problematic across the board for anybody's faith or relationship. You know, if you think you're in that kind of a deep negotiation with the divine about how you're going to get what you want and, you know, you have to give a little to get a little, you're just in a whole other narrative than what you see in sort of Christian spirituality overall. But particularly in what you all bring up and what Brian's on, the Brian you mentioned in in the book that that was the impetus for this documentary, Postcards in Babylon, suggests is, that to take a national narrative and to create that around some sort of Chronicles 7 uh, passage that has, if my people then, because that's there, right? There's no, there's no doubt that the English language of that translation is an if then. We can and should at some later time talk about whether that's an accurate you know, way to translate those, those passages from the Hebrew. But that notion to apply that to the United States, that is... Um, that's really a problem. And I suggest to people, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this. I suggest that if you hear a pastor using that biblical reference, whether they use it in verse and number, you know, Chronicles 7, or they just reference it, we need to be this way as a people so that God will bless our nation and therefore will win wars and be successful and, you know, uh, live happily ever after. If you hear that kind of framing from a pastor, that is a telltale sign that there's Christian nationalism afoot. Like that, I think that's the cornerstone to it. I have never met a Christian nationalist who doesn't use that passage. And I've never Mm -hmm. met someone who uses that passage that I don't think is a Christian nationalist. Uh, (laughs) Now I'm in front conversation with some friends who disagree with me about that, who are um, Christian nationalists. And they see that as a positive term, not as a negative term. Um, but do you, do you see it that way? Like, did you bring that up because you've also noticed that that is just one of the one of the tells that you're that what you're dealing with here is someone who's viewing the world through a Christian nationalist lens? Yeah, I would agree with that because as soon as we think that we can take a, a certain brand of Christianity and a certain way of approaching our relationship with God and make that a priority, that if we can get that brand that particular notion, those particular doctrines or dogmas into the place of power, then the kingdom of God can flourish, which really is completely opposite of what Jesus demonstrated when he was here on earth. It was all about within and and that we were going to leaven. It was uh, this notion that the the kingdom of God is within you and it's going to change people from within. And we changed it rather than this movement from within or this power under to this power over, that we got to get Christianity back in power. And that I think, you know, if we're going to look at that Second Chronicles passage today and apply it, the, the nation that's being talked about there in my mind would be the holy nation of the church, which is global, not a particular bordered nation of a particular um, nation of this world. And, and I think that's where it gets gets twisted, that our nation, that somehow we're different than Canada, where in God's mind, we're all connected, we're all connected through Christ. Or maybe even more so Mexico, where people really want to draw that hard line and literally build a wall separating us from from the people who live on the same, on the same continent. Yeah. And again, thinking about that verse, if our elected officials 
lived by the code of that verse, again, that's not a bad thing, but it's when we use that code to establish power or to come to power, I think that's that's where we end up getting into trouble. So again, I, I think about how things might be different in the state of Pennsylvania if our governor would seek God's face and pray and I don't want to say turn from his wicked ways. I have to be careful there. So, I mean, there are a lot of Pennsylvanians that think our governor is pretty wicked. So, um, but it's, again, it's when we use it for the purpose of power. I mean, I would love if every elected official in the United States lived by that code. But again, where you cross the line is when you're using that for your agenda. Because I don't think that's what what Jesus ever called us to do. So, Yeah, you know, know, I I live in Minneapolis uh, area and my congressional representative is Ilhan Omar, who's a Muslim. And before that, it was Keith Ellison, who's a Muslim. I rarely mm-hmm. hear people use Chronicles 7 to say, I want my representative, Ilhan Omar, to pray to God and to follow the ways of God when she in when she uh, calls for the establishment of laws. What people are saying is maybe the Judeo-Christian, but most certainly just the Christian version, right? They might say maybe their their Jewish representative could pray to their God. But people get extremely uncomfortable when they're like, well, you know, nothing wrong with living out your faith in your public office and all, as long as it fits the worldview that I have. Uh, yeah. And this is this is a tough thing, Dan. I'm interested in your ideas too, because you're you wrote a song that's been internet famous and has meant a lot to a lot of us. And I still rarely can hear you sing it live without becoming <laughs> you know uncontrollably emotional. Um, <laughs> but what this raises is this important issue for people about where does a a person's faith stop? and their civic engagement start, or how do the two interact with each other? No one I know really wants a theocracy. In other words, they don't want to believe that somehow there's the divine call of God on an individual political leader who then puts the will of God into into effect. People aren't quite there. And some people are not comfortable with just keep your faith private. You know, Kathy, I feel like you're saying this in some ways, really helpful. Like, hey, don't just bury your faith and don't tell anyone about it and go into your prayer closet and, you know, uh, come out quietly and never tell anyone what went on in there. People do want their faith to drive them to the common good, but they don't want it to become the basis of our government. That's been a struggle in the United States from its founding, and it feels like we're still struggling struggling with that. So, Dan, do you have any thoughts about what drove you to write uh, the song, the hymn for the 81%? And Yeah, I think it's, uh, Kathy was getting at it, it's the misuse of faith and the combination of faith with power and the desire for power that I think uh, where things go off the rails. And so I think faith should inform our policy-making decisions and uh, our political choices, but it shouldn't be forced on others. We're staring that down uh, right Mm -hmm. now in a lot of local uh, scenarios like school boards deciding what books should be be in the school libraries and the local libraries based on one person's faith and Mm -hmm. disregarding other people's expressions of faith or no faith at all. So when it's forced on other people, uh, I think that's, that's a big problem. So I, I sort of wrote that song him for the 81% less about people uh, using their faith in politics and more (laughs) because 
they claimed to be using their faith as a, as a motivator, but it looked nothing like the Jesus I read about in, in the Bible. And so mm-hmm. it's almost like eh, if you were just out there uh, feeding the hungry and helping the homeless people, like Jesus told us to do, I don't think people would be as upset, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. But the Christian nationalists aren't doing that. They're not demanding that the government care for more people. They're demanding that the government circle the wagons, make sure the right people are in and the wrong people are kept out. David, uh, Kathy, any any thoughts on that? Yeah, I I mean, I remember when I first heard the song, we were um, kind of in the middle of production back in, in 20, get the years right, 2020, I guess it was. And Brian Zahn sent me a text and he had a link to your song, Dan. And I'm not sure how he got it, but he said, hey, you might want to listen to this. And I, I do remember when I pulled it up and listened, it had about 15 or 18,000 views at that point. And of course, as soon as I listened to it, I said to Kathy, this has got to be in the food. Somehow we got to get this in the movie because this captures the core of what we're trying to present especially as you, because I know you went through a transition. Initially, you wanted to like give the church the middle finger, but then you wanted to then change the tone of the song to reach in and say, you know, you're, you're better than this, not condemn them, but I learned from you. And ultimately, I know deep inside there's something better. Because mm-hmm. um, I think a core of what we were getting at in the film and hope to get at mm-hmm. is that the way we're living out our faith and, and our politics as evangelicals is the very thing that's driving people away from the very Jesus we say we want them to find. And I feel like that would be the thing that we would want people to be confronted with. And and I feel like your song did that. And obviously it stepped on some people's toes. And I read a lot of the comments because it seemed like within a day or two, all of a sudden it was getting like 10,000 views every couple hours. And the, the comments were just pouring in. And I remember when we stopped by your house there and did the filming, you had talked about, you were getting death threats. Yeah. And, the re- response and reaction from many people. And as I read the comments, it was clear these were Christians that were responding right. to you. <laughs> it was, it was revealing something deep and dark. What, what's animating us. And I feel like, you know, Brian's on and his teaching, he talks about the Holy spirit and he would say the unholy spirit and the Holy spirit is about a spirit of advocacy. So if we're advocating for people, we know we're operating within the Holy spirit. But if we're operating in the spirit of accusation, which would be that of the Mm -hmm. Satan, then we know we're in the unholy spirit. And if you look at politics, what is animating it? Is it advocacy or is it accusation? And we see that on both sides. Yeah, and one of the approaches people have taken over all these years of the American experiment is for people of faith, especially Christians of faith, to say, I'm going to pull away from public life or politics or civic demand and engagement. We're going to live uh, a different ethic inside of a set of relationships inside the church or maybe a town or something. But the you know, some if you have a spectrum of this, you could sort of put the Amish on one side of that, right? They just don't follow any of the civic customs and they live a life that's dictated by their own by, by their own edicts. Other people have taken the approach of being very engaged in politics, very engaged in public life, and there's a continuum, and people have moved along that continuum, making various demands and engagements of how should they be involved in civic life. Um, Evangelicals and white Catholics have had a curious place, and I think history will show that 
in the late 1990s, early, you know, 2000s, 2020s, there was a decision made by a lot of leaders to lean in more aggressively to grabbing political and social power and to put into place the agendas that they thought were important. So I'm interested in your thoughts about about sort of that continuum. And David, you saying that look, you grew up with your dad being involved with people who have a had a high uh, level of uh, of popularity and awareness among evangelicals. Your dad working with Tim LaHaye, who some people might know or might not know the name, but if they're familiar with a series of books and movies that wanted to scare people into the end times theory of life. Um, that those books were about that and were a cultural force in the 1970s and 80s. Jerry Falwell, of course, others involved in this, who made very deliberate choices to say, we're going to become more politically engaged in the late 70s and 1980s. And that has sort of borne out some fruit. So can you talk a bit about that continuum and kind of the movement that um, of where we find ourselves and this this struggle that that we're having, because I think it's helpful for people to realize we're not only talking about new sets of conditions. I think we're talking about a set of conditions that have been in place in the United States. And we've had multiple uh, ways to, to walk these paths. We're currently on one that I think is uniquely dangerous. I think there's a movement of Christian nationalism with a violent streak and a white supremacist narrative backed up by a former president um, uh, and people that have said that the supporters of him are willing to take to violence in the streets if uh, he's held under, under accountability of law. That's a new level of, um, of, of Christian nationalism. But the conditions of, hey, what do we do about this? Do you engage? Do you not engage? Do you engage only in the church? Do you create a counterbalance? Um, yeah. can, can you talk a bit about that and what the film, what, what the film will help people if they want to engage in this conversation with families, friends, loved ones, or strangers, and they wanted to do a showing of the film um, with some people, what they would get from it? Yeah, Kathy has a thought. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought up, you used the word continuum. So as, as filmmakers, one of the first things you do is you, you nail down your target audience. And if either of you or anybody in our audience had been a fly on the wall as Dave and I went around and around and around <laughs> on our target audience, we talked about, we called it a spectrum. So mm. that, I mean, I mean... Obviously, Doug, you just described a part of the spectrum that has arisen, as you said, most recently, and then all the way to the, the opposite end. Um, we just really struggled with that because we felt that it was a, a message that everyone needs to hear because I think most Christians would if you really if you really nailed them down they would say yeah we really don't handle ourselves well in the public sphere so but we have something really important to say so if we don't say it then fill in the blank so we really struggled with um the message of this film upon whose yeah. ears would it fall the best I'm just kind of form formulating my thoughts as I'm, as I'm saying here, sure, yeah. um, upon whose ears would it fall the best so that it would have the greatest opportunity to make a, a, a change or shift 
this, mm. how we conduct ourselves in the public sphere and how that's damaging our witness and the cause for Christ so that if we would just pull ourselves up short and recognize how we are coming across, then we could make a change. And then maybe throughout, through doing that, mm. we regain the ability to, to speak into this narrative. So yeah. it was, it was a battle. I think even as it was being released, we were still questioning, are we, who, who is this going to have the greatest impact on? It needs to impact us all, but it's, it's a tremendous struggle. If mm-hmm. I can jump on that. Um, you know, as we really wrestled with it, for me personally, it came down to, well, who, who is the target audience? And I said to Kathy numerous times, well, for me, it's become the person who's ready to hear it. Mm-hmm. And something you said, Doug, recently and something I read is that um, you're not about trying to change people's minds. You're trying to engage with people that are changing their minds and want to look at alternatives. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's where I feel if someone's ready for the message of the film, but if, if you're extremely siloed in your perspective politically and you watch this film, you're going to hate it just like this person said. <laughs> the entire film is foolishness. It's left-wing propaganda wrapped up in a thin cloak of feel-good religion. Um, <laughs> one of the earliest comments about uh. the film. Um, but then we had other people say, you know, I've needed this film, like here's one, I needed this documentary all my life, but now more than ever, I weep for our delusions. I'm sad that we can't change, challenge one another's thoughts anymore. Jesus is merciful. This is my hope. Thank you, BZ and the producers. Um, so, you know, we feel like we've, we put out a film that's a prophetic critique. Brian's book was a prophetic critique. And it was rooted in this notion that he saw what was going on politically during the Trump era. And he wanted to be able to tell his grandkids that he did something, he said something. And that's yeah. really what caught my eye when I first read his book. I thought, okay, I want to be part of that too. I want to speak out. I might be wrong on some issues. I may not totally understand everything, but I would like to at least support mm-hmm. the voices of people that I feel are speaking into this in ways that the church in America and even globally needs to hear. Um, and that was really what um, really motivated us from the beginning. And it was yeah. just interesting to see how things, you know, one thing led us to another. I mean, we hadn't even heard of Kristen Dumay. Her book came out. I heard about it like a week after it was released. I ordered it, read it, and said, she's got to be in the documentary. We reached <laughs> out to her. And this was back before she was famous. I mean, now she you can't read about Christian nationalism without her being quoted. Yeah. And yeah. rightly so, her book, Jesus and John Wayne. But she was so gracious. We drove out to to Grand, to, uh, Grand Rapids, that's mm-hmm. Calvin College, yeah. And that's when we also swung down and, and did Dan's uh, music video. Um, so it was, for us, it was a journey of learning and understanding, and we mm-hmm. hope that people were able to come along a little bit. I mean, that was one reason we liked the idea of joining Brian on the Camino, because here it's like it, we had this visual metaphor of this prophet speaking in the wilderness and when we first approached him on the project, I mean, he didn't know us. And we were asking basically to borrow his brand, to borrow his, the name of his book and make a film based on the themes of it. And he told us later, he said, I actually was playing hardball with you guys because he said, if they would fly out and he invite us. He said, well, if you want to you know, engage, come join me on the Camino. I'll be there for 40 <laughs> days. 
So he said, I thought, well, if they'll fly out and find me along the way of the Camino, then they're serious. And so we did. We we figured out where they'd be. We flew into Madrid and then drove to where they were and spent That's five awesome. days with them and and just had a very unique time. I mean, there was I have hours of Brian talking about a variety of subjects, um, some of which are we put together a DVD for this and some of them are available on that. So, so to give people a, a little catch up, if they're watching this, the the film you're talking about is uh, Postcards from Babylon. We're going to show you the trailer right now. You can watch this on you know Amazon Prime and other places. You can get groups together to watch it together. I would encourage you to do that. If you have faith groups or family or friends, you can find ways to to watch this uh, watch this and discuss. It'd be important. The Brian being spoken there of his person named Brian Zahn. Brian is a pastor and has written a book with the same title and on these themes and has been working on the con on the the topic of Christian nationalism and the identity of Christianity in America for a long while. Brian's made tremendous contributions. And there's kind of two sides to these contributions. Brian has been very effective on the what's the effect of Christian nationalism on people of faith. There's a lot of people who are also asking, what's the effect of Christian nationalism on American politics? Because both are being influenced, right? This uh, Christian nationalism is an equal opportunity offender on this front. It harms the church. It harms the country. It really, uh, I think, confuses individuals. So it just does a whole lot of harm. So if you're particularly concerned from a Christian perspective, what does Christian nationalism mean for us and how should we live? Brian is one of the best guides you'll ever find on this on this topic. And there's other people, lots of other information you can find on people that are saying, hey, if Christianity is not your thing, but you're really worried about the effects of Christian nationalism on the United States, and you're not really worried whether Christians are getting a bad rap out of the deal, there's a lot of conversation about what that means too. Um, so how about if we do this? We show uh, the the trailer for, for the film, and then we'll come back and, and talk about it uh, here in a minute. Good? Yeah. yeah. Or do you, want to say, do you want to say anything before before we see the trailer? No, let's watch the trailer. I do have a couple of things I'd like to make sure I touch on, if that's okay afterwards. Sure. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Great. Great. America is deeply reactionary at the moment. Same thing can be said for the church. I think we have worked very hard to try to harmonize the Christian gospel and the American dream. We make a sort of Faustian bargain, a Machiavellian kind of end justifies the means. You're part of our tribe, and if you're part of our tribe, we'll defend you no matter what. And if you're outside of our, our tribe, then you're the enemy. They recast Jesus himself as this ultimate fighting champion. Jesus will not be a mascot for the elephants or the donkeys. Jesus is the lamb and he's going to reign and rule. Every time the early Christians said, Jesus is Lord, they were saying, Caesar is not. Your baptism has made you an exile. You don't belong to this anymore. Political power drives everything. If you cannot criticize your political party, that's your civil religion. You will be respected. You will be in power. It was everything that they ever wanted to hear. The way of the Lamb is always love, the way of the Lamb is always peace, the way of the Lamb is always grace. They say they're rejecting Christianity, but they're actually rejecting a version of American nationalism. The 
one of the most important things for American Christians to perceive is that America is not a kind of biblical Israel, but a kind of biblical Babylon. So good. Oh, that looks like a good movie. <laughs> it's funny, I haven't seen that for a while. How's, how's the editor's mind going when you watch that trailer? Are you still thinking to yourself, boy, I should have done this other cut. There was oh, another piece like I should have included. <laughs> Literally right now. In fact, I'm, I'm almost ready to leave in my office and fix them. No, um, uh, no it's great. Culture. I totally get it. Yeah. Totally get it. The director I had in film school, she said, You're never finished. You just have to quit. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) Always one more little thing you can do. You know, as a musician, I'm sure, Dan, you can. Yeah, it's the same with recording songs. It's like, well, sometimes you just have to put it out in the world. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, David, you said you, there was something you did that that, uh, was was in your mind before we watched the trailer. You wanted to comment on it. Do Do you want to? Yeah. Talk about that now. Yeah, it relates to something that, that you were saying, Doug, in regards to people that are atheists, that, that have no faith and are concerned about what they see in the rise of Christian nationalism. Um, and I'll just read part of one comment that came through. And it says, as a Canadian athe- atheist watching this documentary, I wish more Christians led their lives as Christians mm-hmm. rather than as Christian nationalists. The prominent... Christians who support Trump to further their own personal agendas ultimately helped to lead America to where it is now. Some did mm-hmm. so tacitly, a lot did it overtly. It boggles my mind to this day as to how many of who could be called Christian leaders sold their souls for temporary power. I mean, this is from an atheist. The backing of a fake Christian who so blatantly pandered to the religious light right to get elected, he wrapped himself in the flag, held the Bible. Uh, upside down, I might add, for photo ops, and people believed it mostly because they wanted to. America will pay the price for Donald Trump for decades. In fact, America may never recover. Uh, Mm -hmm. I thought this documentary was well done, and I enjoyed watching it. Uh, There was another person who was, they called themselves a Christian refugee that had a similar response. Um, But what, um, again, going back to who this film was designed to reach, and I didn't think about that audience, although I did feel that at some point people, I would want someone like this person to know that there are Christians out there that are challenging the narrative, that, that are mm-hmm. saying this is wrong and this is hurting the witness of the person that we say we're following, Jesus. Um, we showed the film at our local theater. We had five or six showings and we invited Scott Hancock, who was the professor in Gettysburg that was out there being confronted by some Christian nationalists, um, and also Veronica Jones, who, if you remember in the film, there was a Black Lives Matter rally, and she read some of the, or quoted some of the words of George Floyd as he was dying. Um, So Veronica came, and after the film, we invited her to come up, and she wouldn't identify as a Christian, maybe an agnostic, and she was quite hesitant to even start talking as I talked about her and literally the theater is about a hundred yards from where that demonstration took place that she thought about 60 people would come to. We're in just this little sleepy white Mennonite town and over a thousand people came out for that march. So she was wow. going away. So anyway, she gets up and she was hesitant and then she, she started pointing back at the screen and she said, you know, I'm not a Christian. I don't, wouldn't say I follow Jesus. Um, but she said, if this is what it means to follow Jesus, and she kept pointing back at the screen, 
then maybe I could follow him. And I think she had never been exposed. And then what I love about her story is she brought an evangelical friend the next day to come watch the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Here we had atheists bringing their evangelical friends to watch the film. And it was like, oh, <laughs> there's something going on here that really is catching my attention. You know, for, for those who have thought a lot about what the Christian reputation is in the United States, there was... Uh, when I got into Christianity in the early 1980s, a lot of people were asking the question, like, do do outsiders to the Christian faith, uh, do they believe what we believe and can we help them to believe what we believe? It's kind of a fundamental question. It feels like now the question is that a lot of us as Christians are saying, I think people who are outside the Christian faith are asking, do we believe the things we say we believe? Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's not a question of, uh, like people are unaware of what the gospel is in the United States. Mm-hmm. Like people are pretty tuned in, like Christianity has tended to permeate. But people are like, what I'm seeing, how people live, and this is just true across, not just on this issue of politics, this is just true across the board from, you know, people in power harming children, sexual abuse, women being uh, uh, demeaned and, and harmed, just, you know, the catalog of nonsense and harm that yeah. comes. The, the question isn't, hey, do you all want to believe what we believe? The question fundamental to a lot of people is, do Christians even buy any of this? Or is all mm-hmm. of it just a griff? Is all of it just yeah. a scam? Is all of this just to position certain people to have more or less power in our society? That's a very real question. And I think it's a better question for us to be asking ourselves, frankly, as somebody who works inside the Christian world, you know, like, hey, we should be concerned whether or not any of us actually buy this stuff and take it seriously and, you know, uh, believe Jesus or do we just believe in Jesus, right? For people that are insiders to the Christian faith, that little participle in can give you a whole lot of out, right? If you say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I don't actually have to believe any of the things that he says and, you know, and how I should behave. Um, yeah. So this becomes the the real operative question for people inside the inside the church and what does Christianity's role in society due to these questions. And I'll tell you, I've been a pastor for my entire adult life, which is a really long time now. Most pastors I know, they don't want to talk about this stuff at all. Like they want to avoid it. You bring up Christian nationalism and as we have as an organization, like we run an entire curriculum for churches to use with one another on how to engage these kinds of issues. We're going to be on a bus tour, including in Pennsylvania. So we should talk about having a showing of the film as part of the tour. Yeah, I noticed noticed your curriculum there and I didn't see a link to our film in the curriculum. That's right. (laughs) That's right. Uh, you got can, Ryan's on, Kristen, and Shane, and there's got to be a link to postcards. Yeah, yeah, we'd be, yeah, we'd be glad to we'd we'd be glad to do that. This this curriculum that that we're putting out is designed to help people have these conversations, right? Because they don't know how, mm-hmm. and don't want to, and they don't not want to because they're like, oh, I don't care about it. They're just, I don't know what to say. And a lot of pastors I know say this. I don't want to feed the beast. I don't want to give energy to this fringy group in my church who want to argue about the, having the flag be more prominent and want us to always support bad policies and you know presidents that are cruel. I just don't want to deal with that. We want to be a purple church, a place for everybody, where everybody can be involved. So the way we do that is to not engage. My view is that non-engagement in this current moment has pitfalls that are really really dangerous and we have to look at those. 
How yeah. has this been received in your world, this film and the advocacy you've been doing around these issues to church leaders and faith leaders? Is it closer to what I'm describing or have you seen something uh, much more hopeful? Yeah, we've we've been invited. Some churches showed it, showed the film, and then we were invited to be on a Zoom call because they were in different parts of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did see... In fact, we wrote a study guide for it so you could watch the film and then have a group discussion afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if we, we could say we heard from a lot of pastors that did it, but but I do know, you know, pastor, in fact, one, one pastor, he was going to watch it with just a small group of men that he was mentoring. And he said about 15 minutes in, he said, I realized that I've got to like, spend the next four or five weeks yeah, yeah. 15 minutes because all of a sudden the room kind of lit up and he saw how you know he was touching these these deep-seated ideas and concepts and resentments yep. that we kind of just overlook or don't want to talk about but this film forced them up um so it, it really is it really is an issue yes Kathy, go ahead. It, it's it's interesting you do ask that question um when so in at my church this past Sunday, we're going through we're going through a series on Daniel, and it's about mm-hmm. how we redeem culture. And okay. um, he he said the the pastor that spoke said that they've gotten more emails about the current culture, mm-hmm. and that's what he called it, in the past two years than they have the last ten years combined. And of course, mm. my brain immediately went to, he's talking about what's happening with Christian nationalism and everything that's wrapped up in that. Um, I thought at one point that they would be very specific about not necessarily calling it Christian nationalism, but just more specific about how we as Christians uh, conduct ourselves in the political realm, because basically almost everything that we're talking about here has to do with that. Um, but he, he didn't bring it up specifically, but I'm sure like everybody that was there, that's where their brains went. So the way they handled it was to give us a, a series of questions that as we uh, have conversations with people who would think differently than wherever we are on that spectrum, mm-hmm. we would have the ability to engage with them in such a way that it would be honoring of our faith walk with Jesus. And it was very helpful. But in some ways, I feel like, just like you said, Doug, it's like we want to talk about how, but we want to, we don't want to bring it down to the fact that, hey, we're talking about Christian nationalism here and we need to confront that. So I think yeah. pastors are just, I think they're afraid. They they don't want to rock the boat. The church in America is in like a and a, a massive amount of trouble. And so the idea that you would bring it up and potentially alienate 10, 20, 30% of the people who come, they just can't afford to do that. So they keep it pretty mm-hmm. general. And I think that yeah. I appreciate yeah. the fact that Marcaster brought that up, but it's like, take it to the next level. Mm. So, yeah. but I'm yeah. not sure that's going to happen. Mm. You, know, you filmed almost all of this during the months leading up to the 2020 election. Uh, I think you had even started editing the film and then January 6th happened where you had people leading a prayer to Jesus after raiding the Senate chambers. Did 
did January 6th change things for this film? Did it make it seem more urgent that you get it out there? Well, initially yeah, we question. were initially yeah. we were going to release it before the election because we felt like if somehow this would be helpful, like kind of what you and your organization do, Doug, um, then we would feel like maybe we helped people frame things better in their mind, but then we realized for numerous reasons that that would not be wise. So, um, yeah, we just figured it would get lost right lost in the election in the of the election cycle. So Plus, then we set yeah. it for, um, inauguration, but yeah. then Jan- <laughs> yes, the day after inauguration, but then January 6th happened. I mean, literally it was like this, this can't be, this can't not be in the film. So it just was a, maybe an exclamation point. So yeah, well, the film was edited and we had a streaming premiere set up. It was already on the platform ready to go in early January. And we thought, wow, we're actually not coming down to the very last minute. <laughs> and then, you know, I can still remember over here up my TV watching what was going on in disbelief. And so I texted Brian and I said, this has to be in the film. And he said, yes. Um, so his son's a filmmaker. So I said, well, can you have your son sit you down and just talk about what's happening from your perspective? And so he did that. And then we were able to get a lot of images from AP, you know, that we didn't have to pay a lot for. Um, and so, yeah, that was a, a last minute edition that we finished. Yeah. Then about probably less than 10 days from when it premiered, we were finishing that up and then putting it up. But to me, it was so important because if, if you remember, Pete Wayner talks about when, when truth is dismantled, um, and we certainly know there's a lot of line in politics, but what we've watched is the categories of truth, truth and falsity, falsity literally be dismantled in the last mm. four or five years. And that alternate truth, social media is fed into that in ways I don't think we even have begin to, begun to realize um, mm. that if that happens, then it becomes impossible to rule. And we pulled some of that out of the film. And so we put that part back in and that led up yeah. to then what this January 6th part, that that's what's happening right now. And we're seeing things that really we haven't seen probably since the Civil War. Yeah, it's sort of tragically prophetic that you you have, A, this book that talks about what happens when Christianity grasps for political power. And then you have all these interviews describing uh, this cocktail that's uh, that's been brewing for a while. And then it all just sort of spills out January 6th. Mm-hmm. It's an yeah, unfortunate, like, hey, we all saw this coming if you're paying attention. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and Brian, as he's, we were on several prod- podcasts with Brian, and, and you know, he said, I-, I wish this film and my book wasn't so relevant because what he's seeing right now is you know, very disturbing. And mm-hmm. you know, likewise, I-, I wish the film wasn't relevant. And, and we feel like it's, it's a film that has a lot of legs. Uh, this issue's, well, it's been around for centuries, and it's certainly not going to go away quickly here in our country. Um, and we feel like it touches on things and brings to light um, leader, thought leaders and concepts that are going to be around for a long time. Trump-era politics is going to be the center of conversation for decades, centuries from yeah. now. People will look at this period and wonder what on earth happened. I mean, we travel a lot abroad. We were just in Switzerland and with a family, um, and they were just like, what's going on in America? Um, they just, yeah. 
really surprised. I, I learned this concept from a friend who does a lot of work on the environment, and he said, look, you have to think about the environment as not a problem, but a predicament. He said, problems have mm-hmm. solutions. You just pick one. A predicament is a dilemma that requires multiple responses over time. And mm-hmm. that was such an interesting way, I think, to think about environmentalism and also to think about issues like this, that we don't just have a problem for which there is a singular solution and we're all trying to find it. This is a predicament that we're in. Yeah. And this dilemma is going to continue to face us. You know, I feel we made a mistake in this country in the 1950s by inserting onto our national currency phrases like, in God we trust. That's not something about our founding. In fact, our founding of this country had a totally different view about that kind of thing in public statements. But it got put on our most you know, distributed pamphlet that we have in the United States, which is our currency, and kind of created a whole narrative. And that was done for a reason to try to combat what people were afraid of, which was they were calling godless communism, right? And so these conditions in the 1950s have produced an outcome that now you hear people today arguing things like, well, it says right on our currency in God we trust. So therefore we know this is a Christian nation, right? Like the arguments that are used are coming out of that period of time that we're trying to deal with a particular uh, problem in a certain way and they had a, a particular response to it. So we're, this is ongoing work that has to happen. And if people think that the solution to Christian nationalism's negative effects is simply the defeat of or the incarceration of you know, Donald Trump or something like that, or Marjorie Taylor Greene loses her election or something you know, along these lines, um, yeah, yeah that, that is going to have a certain amount of impact. There are certain you know, agents of chaos in our, in our public life that if they weren't creating such chaos, things would be better. And we should ask those people to move on with their lives and do something less destructive to the well-being of this country. But it's not going to solve the problem because we've been having this debate to the point that like the first amendment tried to get after this, right? (laughs) Like we're going to protect religion from government and government from religion. And we're still struggling with it. So mm-hmm. I've, I'm bad at my math, you know, from, you know, the founding of the, the writing of the, of the amendments to the Constitution to today. But, you know, 240 some years, we're still struggling with this question. And the answers that are being proposed right now are as dangerous as they have ever been. And I think we mm-hmm. need to have a view of this that takes all that into consideration. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and two, the notion of, it being a process, and it's going to be a process that I think is predicated on our ability to communicate with our political others and the opposites. Um, we went to a Trump rally while we were filming postcards, and it was in what January, and it was actually a fairly warm January, but it was still like it was like thirty-five and raining. Mm-hmm. And we got there like four hours early, thinking, "Oh, we'll get in line and hop right in the auditorium." Well, this was right at the beginning of twenty twenty when Trump rallies all of a sudden became like the place to be. And so I think the place seated like 12,000. We never got in and there was still like five or 6,000 of us outside. This is out at Hershey Park. Um, But it was so interesting to see that there was, and we were in line with Trump supporters and had great conversations, good people. And then we heard that there was a protest rally. And it took me about 
25 minutes just to find it somewhere lost in the parking lot. <laughs> so you had protesters against Trump and against his ideas, and then you had Trump supporters. They couldn't even see each other. And as you remember, this is a picture of what's going on nationally, yeah. and even with the context of social media, it allows us to exist in these silos where we can't hear yeah. each other. There was no conversation. And quite possibly, had they been closer together, it would have been very antagonistic. But it just hit me. That's, that's our problem. That's our issue. We've so polarized ourselves that we don't even have a conversation or a relationship statistics now are coming out how you know even roommates are in a dorm room they don't want to have a political opposite across the hall right. parents more and more are choosing we don't want your our son to marry a democrat or a republican depending um so these are issues that have we have to be talking about and working on ways of coming together well i agree i have a little anecdote I'll, I'll share with you that i've shared before so for frequent listeners they're familiar with this one but in in 2017 when the Senate passed this tax bill. Donald Trump came to where I live here in Minnesota to herald this tax bill. It was also the time he started to insult my congresswoman, uh, Ilan Omar. And that caused a fierce reaction. So he was going to be speaking, Donald Trump was, at a factory outside of Minneapolis in a place called Shakopee, small little two-lane road leading into this factory. And so the road got lined with Trump supporters on one side and supporters of Ilan Omar on the other. And I had a radio show at the time on a local radio station. So I was moving back and forth across this little two-lane road, interviewing people on both sides. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that people said during this during these interviews, what, uh, people on both sides of this road would, I would say, like, what are you up to? How are you feeling? What's going on out here? And somewhere people would say some version of, pointing across the road. I have no idea who those people are. Mm -hmm. Like these are people who live close enough to this little road in in you know just outside of Minneapolis that they drove there. They yeah. are 25 feet from each other and looking mm -hmm. at each other saying, "I have no idea who you are." Proximity mm -hmm. is not enough to overcome these issues, right? Mm -hmm. What we're dealing with and you know, look, any of us who've lived in family conflict know that proximity is not the solution. I mean, some of us who are at battle with our own thoughts and minds of ourselves and have a little, you know, mind uh, wheel going on that says negative things to us about our very own selves know that our own brains don't even give us enough, you know, space to be able mm -hmm. to have, have non-attack happening. We need other modes than just get people in touch with each other. Like that just... Dan and I in our organization and you like we all travel around the country. We engage people all the time. We've sat in bars with Proud Boys and sung songs to Christian nationalists and you know, we're willing to go anywhere with anybody. But it's not just about contact and get close and share with someone an idea they haven't heard. There's another means by which people have to influence one another. And that's what's actually more hopeful, I think, because I don't think it's just, I don't think our solutions to these issues we have in the United States uh, are simply going to, are, are only related to making sure the media behaves better or someone figures out a better algorithm for our social media. Mm. I think we need new practices. And I wish churches did their part 
to help people know how to engage, take people seriously, love one another, even your enemies, and then engage on important issues that we can move forward on. But that's the complex thing. And, and the reason I'm so proud of this documentary, we share it with one with people and want people to know about it, is documentaries actually are proving out to be one of the great ways that people do take in information that's powerful to them. And when they reflect back on their own changes, people often name documentaries in the litany of things that they say have caused a change in their life. So I, I think you're really on to something that, you know, not only just being able to see and hear each other doesn't, doesn't do the trick, we need other ways of practice. Do, do you have any good advice or encouragement for people that are looking for those, for those other ways? Uh, yeah. Well, a couple things come to mind is one is a, a friend of mine, and this is someone that I think you should consider having on your program, Doug and Dan. Um, she's part of this listen. Um, it's called the listen courageously. Um, mm -hmm. it's a gal named Julia Tofar and then Megan, our friend, a good friend of ours works with her, but basically they created a documentary where they took political opposites had them sit down and have a conversation about some of the hot button issues, you know, like uh, immigration, um, certainly gun control, um, abortion, and really substantive, interesting conversations where they were polarized in their perspective, but were learning how to have a conversation. They then go into organizations and then teach us how to, to really have a conversation and sit and listen courageously. Because I feel like that's what we don't do well is we listen so we can respond. And I'm as guilty of that as anyone versus like a friend of mine, he says, I don't listen so I can agree. I listen so I can have understanding of what you think and feel and why. And I feel like if we could get more of that type of cultural empathy happening mm -hmm. where we seek understanding from what the other person uh, understands and, and believes um, that we could possibly make make some progress because the the, the the divisiveness is you know measurably worse and it's hard to see it getting better. Yeah, we we did a project in 2020, partly driven by the fact that we had to not travel the country because of COVID, um, and we still created a video series that we entitled Hindsight. 2020 and it was faith voters who had voted for trump in 2016 and were not planning to yeah. in 2020 and asked them to tell their yeah. stories and we talked to a lot of people who've who've changed and have ended up with this sort of schema of conditions that have to be in place and there's they're a little more complex than um, simple i put them here but there's three conditions that we've realized are always in place when someone has made a change sometimes they go in this order sometimes they go in other orders but people do end up taking in new information or something changes their perspective. Some, some, you know, comet shoots across their mind in some way and they notice something they didn't before. This is one of the places where documentaries are so helpful because people are more adapt, more apt to be changed by watching something sitting on their couch than they are by, you know, almost any other set of conditions, right? They've chosen it, let it into their house. So all these people we talked to, we'd say like, Hey, what caused your change? And they would just tell their stories and all the time people would mention some documentary, sometimes having to do with politics, sometimes like just about food and sometimes about like economics, just stuff. Like they're like, my world opened up and I realized, oh, so new information is super important. But the second condition that has to be there is someone says to them, it would be better if you made a change. 
Like someone calls them to change. This is what people who do AA work or do, you know, work with Noom or food eating programs. They're like, you kind of need someone saying to you, not just, you know, because everybody knows that stuff, right? They're like, but you need someone who can help champion you into the action, into the activity. That's yeah. a whole role for people. And then the third, and this has been the most crucial People need a community of participation to be engaged with that takes this new way of thinking, living, and being and has incorporated it. And the thing we have found talking to Republicans and Republican voters all over the country who feel like they've changed, they've, you know, they woke up, they're starting to speak up, and they don't know what else to do, is they'll say, I don't know anybody else who thinks like this. I mm -hmm. am all alone. And, you know, we could go on and on with just heart-wrenching stories of people who've told us, like, we're like, how'd you get to our little event? Uh, you know, we're the people in the parking lot that nobody pays attention to, you know? Like, how'd you get here? And they're like, well, I drove 42 miles to get here because I can't tell anybody in my town. I can't tell anybody in my church. Like, they're really alone. And I feel like it's that community of participation that, frankly, is I, I spend a lot of time in Democratic circles. I'm proud of them. I think they're great. I think it's the best political idea going right now. I'd encourage people to, to you know, think like a Democrat and vote like one. But de mm -hmm. most Democratic circles are not totally open to quickly change or re recently changed Republicans or someone who's like, I don't want to be a Democrat. I just don't want to vote for these Republicans anymore. What do I do? I feel politically homeless. Like mm -hmm. that's a yeah. really tough space. And you need all three of those conditions over time. And so I just don't know if you have any thoughts about any of that. I know we're going long over time here, but um, if you have any thoughts about, you know, information that people take in, invitation for a change, and then a community of participation. See, well, anytime some old preacher puts together some alliteration like that, you know that, you know, you, you, you know you're... Your your BS detector should start to start to go off just a little bit. Like, how do those things actually work like that? But um, do do those three things seem to fit what you were finding as you've talked with people and, and what you did in the documentary? You know, you ask us, you know, not necessarily resources, but I think, and again, not to toot our own horn, but I think using a film like this and just inviting, you know, when we tend to get together with other people on a social basis, we mm. keep things on kind of an even keel, but maybe being brave enough to invite someone who thinks differently than you do about these issues and say, Hey, we let's, let's do a little experiment. Come on over. We'll have dinner. We'll watch it. And then let's challenge each other, which goes to your second point is, is somebody saying, you know, maybe it's even opening ourselves up and saying, okay, so having watched this, what would you like to say to me? I'm, I'm yeah, opening myself great. up. You know, is there anything about me that you feel this film would say, because I think it's a little safer than just inviting somebody over and saying, hey, we noticed something about you that's a problem. But when you use a film yeah. or a book or whatever, you know, a book club, sit, sit down and read Brian's book or another, or, you know, Jesus and John Wayne and say, Let, let's talk about these things. I think that it takes such tremendous effort and discipline to do that. Mm -hmm. But if those kinds of conversations were happening in living rooms, like you said, when you invite something into your house, um, I just think we could we could begin to turn the tide. So yeah, so great, it's vulnerable. Yeah, and I think along with that is you were saying earlier, Doug, about having a space because, like you said, both in the Republican circle and Democrat, 
if you're kind of like we're independent voters and I often don't feel comfortable in either. Um, mm-hmm. And so because it, it's gotten to the point where you're either all in on one side or all in on the other. Otherwise, you don't have a home here. And, and I do feel like um, because we've been in situations where we're at a Super Bowl party and it was some of our conservative evangelical friends. I mean, I'm very much a double belonger. I have close friends on both sides, you know, extreme sides. Um, so they were talking about things related to the election, which had just happened. And someone said, well, I'm, it's great to be with people who all agree on something. And of course, I was disagreeing dramatically with much of what was going on, but I didn't feel at that point it was clear that if I would have brought up a dissenting opinion, the whole Super Bowl party would have gone south. And, and I yeah. think we need to realize that we're around people that think differently and that we need to be okay as they would express their opinions and, and not be shocked or yeah. shame, you know, all of the things that we use to mm-hmm. isolate ourselves from the very people that we might be able to influence and who should be influencing us. Um, but we don't have a good space for that. Good yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I'm struck by the Jesus narratives in the gospel of the, you know, the the named disciples that are that are picked and are, you know, their stories are told. That out of the twelve, you know, you got a betrayer, you've got a denier, you've got a uh, somebody that uh, that um, doubts, and doubters, betrayers, and deniers, you know, make up a pretty good percentage of that kind of group. And so you, there's something you see, and I just wish a lot of pastors would spend their time thinking about the community that Jesus was forming and not the community of the nation of Israel and some bad Christianized reading of the book of Daniel or Chronicles or whatever, Kings or however they want to go. Like there, there's, there's a resource there that I think all of us could benefit from. And um, so it's easy to think, well, you know, all your disciples are alike. Well, you know, you end up with four gospels for a reason because they don't agree with each other. So right out of the shoots, the four gospels are telling you that agreement is not the point. And then you yeah. look at this biographies of the people in there, and you're like, and agreement's not the point. But we continue to try to say, and a lot of pastors will want to say, don't bring up anything that's going to cause dissension or any of the rest mm-hmm. of it because we don't want people to share their disagree. Like we don't know how to live in a fact that people disagree about stuff that matters. And the great thing about the gospel stories with the disciples is in that storyline, that all kind of mattered. Like, it's not like you were arguing about which football team you were rooting for, or, you know, do you, do you double dip in the queso with your chip? That's not the (laughs) argument that people are having, right? It's something of much, much greater consequence here. Uh, But double dipping, you know, not, not, not to try to, you know, think the double dipping is ever appropriate of course it's not but this is the kind of especially post-covid uh, it's how did we ever yeah, think that I was mean, okay yeah i mean why do we have yeah. queso after covid anyway um you can't you can't do that it just doesn't seem all right hey uh thank you so much for the documentary thanks for all of your good work i'm serious about connecting with you we're there we're going to be in in pittsburgh area on the 22nd of september and we're going to be back okay. in uh, in pennsylvania let's talk about putting a showing together and getting some people out we're going to be traveling around with a uh, faith, hope, and love, not insurrections and Christian nationalism tour. So it would, uh, yeah, we've seen, seen your billboards. It, oh, good. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're, we're ready to roll out a bunch of those. We are, we are ready to, to kick it up and, uh, and to make, make uh, a statement about such things. So, uh, what David is referring to there, you can go to the vote common good.com 
page and see uh, billboards that we're running in Michigan and Pennsylvania now, and they're going to be running other places in the country. We'd love to have any of you part of all that. So, uh, all right, we'd love to be in touch. And uh, thanks so much, Dan. Anything in the um, yeah, really active chat. Thanks for everyone uh, following along. Uh, hey, Joel, glad you're with us. Joel had some great comments about the disciples as well. You know, saying they weren't homogenous. They were, you had zealots, you had tax collectors, you had oh, nice all these people that came together. But yeah, the the chat was uh, got off the rails a little bit there, <laughs> as, uh, as as public as chats, chats do. sometimes do. Um, but thanks to everyone, uh, Johnny, Tara, Ray, Dale. Thanks to everyone following along. And uh, again, the the documentary is called Postcards for Babylon, and uh, www.postcardsdoc.com. Is that the best way to find it and purchase it and share yeah, it with your friends? Yeah, all the platforms it's available on. More information. Uh, and then we have a Facebook page too with a lot of resources. Nice. Um, and so. Bonnie asked, can she buy the DVD and then have a party and show her friends? Or is that a copyright infringement? Good question. I think uh, I think that's encouraged though to show this to your friends, right? No, no we would love that. We, you can get the DVD. I mean, we, we have those. They can go to our, our globalstoryfilms.com and you can order a DVD there. We had a bunch made up. We weren't sure how many people. I mean, people aren't buying DVDs like they used to, but we, you know. Yeah, I was going to say, can you order a DVD player there too? Is that also available? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can actually rent a TV <laughs> on a cart that they'll roll into we your house. We literally got a DVD player. the other day, and I'm like, I don't have a, I don't know where to put no this. No to play um, it, yeah. But there are bonus items on the DVD. That's true. So if you want to have extended <laughs> interviews from Walter Brueggemann, worth it. Brian Zahn, Kristen Dumay, Shane Claiborne, um, Pete Weiner, that's all on the DVD. So there's more resources there. So yeah, if she wants to um, go to post or, uh, globalstoryfilms.com, she can order the DVD. We'll get that right out to her. Or just rent it or you can actually purchase it on on Amazon and have it permanently there in your Amazon queue whenever you want to watch it or show it to people. Great. Terrific. Well, thanks. It's super important. We hope people pay attention to it and, um, you know, find, find some way to bring about the common good and love one another out there, friends. So, all right, David, Kathy, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks so much for being with us. Good to see you again. Good to see you guys too. Yeah. Bye. Bye now. <laughs>